Jackson County, 1885. The small farming community of Black River Falls begins to feel the crunch of an economic downturn. As conditions worsen, the behavior of the residents, mainly European immigrants, begins to drastically change. Amid an array of arson fires burning up the countryside, a rash of murder, suicide, disease, and mental illness permeate the local papers. Eighty years later, a college student and would-be author researches the forgotten era and finds that an entire state had seemingly turned completely mad. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this, another episode of Badger Bazaar, and another tale from America's scary land. How you doing, Mickey? <laughs> Been another typical week in Wisconsin, from what I've seen. So the Badger State uh, strikes again. Yeah. We got to talk about something that's in the news here, and it's it's, it's becoming a kind of a of a typical... Badger State moniker. I don't know how if it's typical. We're talking about it because it's a little strange, but well, and I think if you if you uh, if you look at our history kind of as a whole, it's kind of becoming a little typical. Okay, but it's not like every day someone cuts off a head and puts it in a bucket. That's true. I mean, not yet. I did it yesterday, but nobody knows about it yet. So in the- I'm not trying to incriminate myself, by the way. That did not happen, for the record. Hopefully there will not be a knock on the front door anytime <laughs> With uh, my luck, while we're recording No here. one's even listening to this, and yet somehow the cops will be here, because that's how my luck works. So we need to talk about something you know, that kind of fits in with uh, our vaunted uh, Badger State criminal our history. Shtick. And this has made international news the last uh, week or so. It's happened in Green Bay. It has gotten that big, huh? It's international news. Oh, no kidding. See, that's how bizarre it is. This doesn't happen that often in any state, even our bizarre state. So we've had another body dismemberment uh, you know, murder case. She's uh, Birds innocent, fly. Innocent until proven guilty, buddy. <laughs> the sun sets. Somebody dismembers someone in Wisconsin. So in Green Bay, in the last couple of weeks, we've had a, uh, a 24-year-old woman who's been arrested for murdering 
and dismembering a friend, an acquaintance, a partner. It's a 24 year old woman that that has been arrested for the murder of a 24 year old man in Green Bay. Taylor Sha Business, S C H A Business. You're right. It's a it's a unique name. Um, is now um, being charged with first degree intentional homicide, mutilating mutilating a corpse, and third degree sexual assault in the death of Shad Therion, T H Y R I O N. Her bond is set at two million dollars. That's pretty serious. So the article that's that's well, there's been many many articles about this, and and you know the one I think that has uh, a lot of the information, pertinent information going on. I'll read a little bit about it here. It's from the Green Bay Press Gazette, um, and we can talk a little bit about what happened here. So Taylor Shabusiness, 24 year old female, picked up Shad Therian about 9:30 p.m. February 21st. Shabusiness said. She, an unidentified friend, and Therion got some drugs and went to an Eastman Avenue apartment in Green Bay where all three smoked marijuana. All right. Seems like a pretty typical night so far. Right. That's what you do in Green Bay. And then Shabusiness and Therion smoked meth. Again, pretty typical night in Green Bay. (laughs) Totally, yeah. Breaking bad. Her roommate then left and Shabusiness injected Therion and herself with trazodone. An antidepressant, um, but it's, I think trazodone is mostly used as a sleep agent. Uh, it is listed as an antidepressant, but I think it's mostly used pretty much as a sleep agent. At some point, Shabusiness and Therian returned to his mother's home and went into the basement. The two were there for all or much of February 22nd. About five minutes after they went into the basement together, Therian got out two metal silver chains one that he had around his neck and one he gave her, Shabusiness told police. She described the chains as like a dog's choke collar. She said strangulation had been part of their sex acts in the past. He laid face down on the bed and Shabusiness said she went, quote, crazy, unquote, and began to choke him with the chain and said she did not stop even though he was coughing up blood and his face turned Purple. The killer herself said she went crazy. Like, she's admitting all this stuff firsthand. This isn't somebody else's speculation. She's saying this. She told Green Bay Police Detective David Graff, quote, yeah, I liked it, unquote. <laughs> yeah. Which he believed meant the strangulation, according to the criminal complaint. Shabusiness said she continued choking him until he stopped breathing. Shabusiness told police she first, quote, played with the victim's body for like two or three hours, unquote, which led to the sexual assault charge. Then she used knives from the kitchen to decapitate and dismember Therian, planning to take all of the body parts with her, quote, but she got lazy, unquote, and didn't. She said that herself. Some body parts were discovered in the van and some in the basement, placed in plastic shopping bags, a cardboard box, a plastic bucket, and a plastic storage container. Therian's mother said she was awakened by a storm door slamming between 2.30 and 3 a.m., and she heard a vehicle. She got up, saw a light in the basement, and made the gruesome discovery, which means her son's head in a bucket. 
Dried blood was found on a nearby mattress. So thus, as the world turns in uh, Wisconsin crime history. This was only a few weeks ago, too. This was uh, February 21st, 22nd, and apparently through the the, uh, early morning of the 23rd. It's just crazy how candid she is about her own actions. Like, So part of me thinks she was gone on meth, but to be able to do those gruesome acts... I mean, and I'm not saying she did them well and she got lazy, as she so disgustingly mentioned, but the fact that she could go through with all this almost ritualistic act, as high as she must have been, I mean, I, I've never done meth. I have no idea what you are capable of when you're on it. It just seems like she must have sobered up at some point because this is, I'm assuming, a long process. And at some point you must kind of crash or come down. And for her to have done all this stuff, and and she doesn't, she tells it so candidly, like she, there's no remorse. So it's this girl didn't just have a blackout trip where she just thought she, this was happening and it didn't. At some point, she came to herself and must have realized that she was in the process of murdering and cutting up a body. You know, I mean, it's kind of hard to comprehend even all this stuff. It really is. It's it's very reminiscent of as we talked before. It's very reminiscent of the kind of mo that Jeffrey Dahmer right. used, right? Serial killer esque. But this is a supposedly first time so yeah and there's there's another article which the headline woman accused of meth field sexual assault and dismemberment of man's corpse reportedly had near quote infatuation unquote with jeffrey dahmer so talking about her talking about her that's telling so you can see that influence there using you know drugs and alcohol at least drugs to Lure. Lure. And then, um, uh, you know, it's obviously an act. If she had an infatuation with Dahmer, she... she She's fantasized was, about this. Of course. So, I mean, that means... I'm, I'm assuming it means she's, you know, taken foreign substances, gotten all high, and just dreamed about doing this, which tells you that there's something not quite right about her. I mean, that she's even considering at any state brutally, ritualistically murdering someone and chopping them up. And then to be able to execute it, just so lavishly <laughs> talk about it. Like, yeah, I think I blacked out, and I just and, and she just talks about it so nonchalantly, and yeah, and then I kind of got lazy. I mean, just, it's it's crazy. You read the article, and it's just, it kind of makes your jaw drop. So it doesn't sound like there's any remorse there. No, right, exactly. Which certainly, if she hadn't offended before, and I know that, She's got a, a rap sheet, but it's nothing like this. It's no. drug arrests and, you know, small-time stuff. Um, but, you know, either she has offended before and nobody knows about it, or more than likely I think this was her first time. As you said, there's evidence of sloppiness that right. if she... Because, unfortunately, a lot of serial killers will practice this, even on roadkill or live animals where they're not going to necessarily get caught or in trouble for it. Right. And so they kind of perfect these actions and these and these motions and acts. And she obviously, it from all the evidence, it seems like this was her first time doing anything this disgusting and It physical. would appear, and she uh, apparently is married well, and has I didn't children. Know that, really. Right. Uh, so all of this is kind of coming out. Uh, again, <laughs> you know, Innocent until proven guilty, and there there is obviously um, a dead person here, you know, yeah. who, who needs to be respected and needs um, 
you know, his family needs prayers and, and obviously. Just imagine what that mother felt when she walked in and saw Imagine that. finding your son's head oh in a bucket. God. In your own house. Right. It's not like she went to some estranged son's house and found it, which would be over the top enough, but this is where she lives. Yeah. I Thank God I don't have to know what that feels like. So there's there's a lot of stuff to get straightened out before, you know, all this goes down. But if, if this was her first time, thank God she was sloppy. Right. She's caught and hopefully put away till she isn't able to do this anymore. You know, a lot of times when uh, copycats, if you want to call her that, um, get infatuated with somebody that they want to emulate, they also try to emulate that number and actually try to beat that number. Now, I'm right. not saying she's capable of doing that. I have no idea. Right. Nobody does. But even if she would have tried another one and another one, you know, that's not going to happen anymore. So, And I don't even know that Dahmer was all souped up when he was doing what he did. And it sounds like she did have that stuff in her system, which may have contributed to her capability of doing it. Oh, I'm sure there's no question in my mind that the meth had some some contribution here. She might not have been able to start the whole process had she not been hired in a kite. Maybe. Maybe, but like you said. Is it the reason it started? But she's been fantasizing about it, so she's, she's had the thoughts. But to be able to execute and to have the thoughts are very different. You know, meth, unfortunately, is is really prevalent. A lot of people do meth, and most of them don't do this. So I'm not, you know, I'm not going to say the right. meth The meth was the culprit. Um, you know, did it contribute? Just because you're a meth head doesn't mean you're a ritualistic murderer. Now this, this segues, um, unfortunately, right into the topic of discussion for today, which is the, uh, was the seeming epidemic of murder crime and mental illness that was devouring our state for two decades around the turn of the 19th century and documented in the book Wisconsin Death Trip, which is probably one of the more disturbing pieces of pop culture uh, to be released in recent times, really. The book was released in 1973. If you haven't read that book, I can pretty much guarantee that you've never read anything like it never seen anything like it. It documents events um, really in the entire state of Wisconsin. It uses Black River Falls of a, as, as a kind nucleus, of a, right, as a backdrop for that. Um, but it, it documents events in the state and really in the country as a whole around the turn of the century, 1880s, mid-1880s to 1910. Well, it documents it in Wisconsin, but it's basically representing what happens throughout the country. How did you come across this? So the first time, I was in high school. The first time I ever saw the book, it was Wisconsin. a long time ago. Death, it wasn't it? <laughs> Quite a while. So I've known about this book for a long time. You're like time. 400 years old. Right. Eh? And I'm older than you. So because, you know, this is kind of when I was getting into photography uh, to begin with. I just got it from the public library, you know, and I, I had heard about it. I don't remember when. But I heard about it, and I heard it. Um, you know, it uses photography to tell a story, which so you were you know, intrigued to look. At I was the intrigued at it. Yeah, I didn't really understand what it was because there's about. a lot of pictures in it, right? Which is why it's good reading for me. <laughs> Quick and easy read, right. right? Yeah. So I remember I just got it from the public library and I brought it home, and uh, I remember looking at it. I'm like, what? What? Am I looking at like what in the hell? Just what by itself? When you first look at the first few pages, what? 
It's going to be your reaction, Eddie. No doubt about it. I mean, it, it's it's it paints a narrative of people going batshit crazy <laughs> in Black River Falls, Wisconsin, turn of the century. And it juxtaposes photographs, very kind of gothic, dark photographs with... Everything's black and white anyway, because that's what the technology offers. Right, they're antique offered, photographs, yeah. Which, I mean, that offers to that anyway. It just kind of has that creepy feel to it Right, to black with, and white you know? does, yeah, right. And it juxtaposes these photographs with articles from a local newspaper in Black River Falls called the Badger State Banner. And these articles talk about the darkest things you can imagine, right? Murder, suicide, suicide infanticide, anything delirium you can think of. People going losing their mind, uh, disease, just people not having any money and losing their minds as a result of that because they're overwhelmed by their debt and their responsibilities overcoming them. I mean, just everything coming together, and that's what was going on at the time throughout the country. It's a history book, but it tells history in a different way than what we're used what we're used to being told history as. You know, we're used to being taught history or used to learning about history with facts and dates. And this this tells a story in in mood and emotion and, and images. It doesn't you know, the, the the photographs don't line up with the articles. They're not the same. No. The people in the photographs. It's very, it's it's definitely, you know, when we think about our, you know, our world today, obviously very different than a world that was 120 years ago. And this is a very striking symbol of that. I remember it, like I said, the first time I looked at this book. What about you, Mickey? You remember the first time that you saw Wisconsin Death Trip? To be honest, I had no idea. I've lived here my whole life, but it came down to an album by a group called Static X which was wildly popular in the 90s. I think it might have been a little later than that. Maybe, well, late yeah. 90s, early yeah. 2000s. And it was called Wisconsin Death Trip. I mean, and it was Push It as a big hit on, off that. But that might ring a bell with you as a listener. But it's based on this. And the thing is that they had Wisconsin ties, but none of them are officially from Wisconsin. I think the, uh, one of the band members is from Illinois, but that's how I heard about it. And I didn't even realize that it was based on a book until... You know, maybe years later when I finally understood that it was about a certain gentleman taking photographs and another gentleman, Michael Lessie, making this book. So you come at it from different angles, but as you said, it's kind of a cult following. It's well known, whether it's well understood or people know to the level of what it is, is a different story. But people know that it, it's, a, it's, a big, it's a big deal, as you said, and it's, it's unlike anything I've ever read. It's a different read than any book I've ever put in front of my eyes. So. Definitely has a, a cult following to it, but and and I think you're right. I think, especially with the younger generations, you know, and I would I would put us in that category as you know, this book was was written before we were born right. for the most part. So you know, I think people our age and younger, they hear Wisconsin Death Trip, and I think most people think of the movie that came out in 1999. And Static X. Right. And, you know, a lot of but people... But it's all based on the same thing. It's all thing. based on this book. I mean, the fact that a, a big-time band even based an, an album, their first album, their signature album on, on this story, that, that tells a lot. When you see the book, you realize why. Just the front cover even right. stands out. So what is Wisconsin Death Trip? It all kind of started in 1968 when the man who wrote, saying he wrote the book is a little bit of a stretch. He put the book together. 
Michael Lessie was his name, uh, is his name. Michael Lessie's still around. He's still very active. Um, he's uh, written a number of books after this, and he is also the uh, Emetrius Professor of Literary Journalism at Hampshire University in Massachusetts. So he was a student at UW-Madison in in the late 60s, in 1968. And uh, as a student, he was introduced to a local photographer, a local turn-of-the-century photographer in Black River Falls by the curator of iconography at UW-Madison at the time. His name was Paul Vanderbilt, who, if if you are in the photographic industry in Wisconsin, Paul Vanderbilt is a name that you know and you respect. And Michael Lessie was introduced to a photographer named Charles Van Skoik, not the photographer himself, but his work, in 1968 while he was a student at UW-Madison. And Charles Van Skoik, as I said, was a photographer around the turn of the century in Black River Falls, kind of just your normal working photographer. From like 1885 to... From 1885 to... 1930? He worked, you know, yeah, roughly till about 1930. So Charles, you know, Charles Van Skoik... His name is is spelled V A N, capital S C H A I C K. Looks like it's pronounced Van Shack or Van Shake. I have been told by the Jackson County Historical Society as well as the Wisconsin Historical Society that is pronounced Van Schoik. And he's your normal working photographer at that time, right? He's taking pictures of marriages, families, homes, businesses, studio portraiture. But then he also created what kind of seems bizarre to us today, what, but kind of was a mainstay in those days, and that's post-mortem photography. And that's why it's bizarre to us, because that's not what we do anymore. We don't do that today. You but know? that's what was done regularly, because that's the only photos you might have had of a young child, especially. If you were living between, in the Victorian era, kind of when these were popular, 1870s to early 1900s, you didn't have snapshots of everybody in your family in everyday life. You don't have the technology we have. Right. The only photos you had were professionally done, and you took them seriously. Right. You didn't have a camera in your house to grab. You didn't have a cell phone. When somebody died, particularly a child, you likely did not have a photograph of that child. Or if you did, you had maybe one or two. The only picture you might have had was them post-mortem. So when they died... They kind of dressed them up and put them in their coffin and, and dressed their coffin of flowers and however it was, and they took a portrait of that. And the thing is, these pictures portray these beautiful children. They, they look they look like the life is still in them, like they're asleep, but you see the coffin around them, so there, there's just this weird feeling that comes over you as you look at them. And the pictures alone in this book tell the story so dramatically. Just and there's a lot of them, but it, it's it's amazing. This book tells a story like no other book. So when when Charles Van Skoik passed away in 1940, there was a whole trove of his photographs. Thirty thousand plate glass negatives were, he left behind in his studio, and his studio became the local telephone company in Black River Falls, and they pretty much just left those plate glass negatives. In their basement, and one day, one day they wanted those plate glass negatives out of their basement because if you think about it, thirty thousand plate glass negatives is taking up a lot of space. Yeah. So they called the you know the local historical society at the time and said, "We want to get rid of these. Do you want them?" Of course they did, and then they contacted the state historical society and said, "Do you want these?" 
And of course they did, at least some of them. I think we've preserved, we've preserved 8,000 of the 30,000 found Charles Van Schoik plate glass negatives. And of these 8,000, I think Michael Lessie used roughly 200 of them, maybe a little less, 150 of them, I think. So Michael Lessie, when he saw these photographs, he was struck by them. I mean, they're, they're, they're antique, obviously. Taken turn of the century, roughly 1885 to 1930. Like Mickey said, the area that Michael Lessie was working in was 1885 to 1910-ish which was a very different world than we have today, right? So we have a lot of these post-mortem photographs, photographs of people, and this is Black River Falls, turn of the century Wisconsin. You're talking rural Wisconsin. Low income. Low income, if income at all. Right, a lot of them are just You're talking despondency. But having said that, a lot of the photos aren't necessarily morbid, or post-mortem, a lot of them are family photos. Right. Which, back then, they didn't smile because that was a sign of goofiness, silliness. And as we said, photos were a, a serious thing because it cost money. It was a, a one-time thing. You didn't just take photos anytime you want. They weren't selfies and all that stuff. We didn't have the technology back then that we do now. So they were very serious things where people, they, they were in their best clothing, their best behavior, Everything was at their best, so but even there were still warm feeling family photos. But even those just had a a a coldness to them. Like you could just feel even by the family photos where they're all kind of close together, but they're kind of posed a certain way that you you could just feel that there was something serious going on. That there weren't necessarily happy times, no matter what you were doing. And I mean that's kind of the the portrait this books kind of painting everything wasn't desolate and unhappy but that's the feeling you get from these photos even the ones that aren't post-mortem and 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 death related it's just got that feeling that it just kind of comes over you with every page that you turn it's it's amazing you know yeah some of these photos are just really beautiful examples of you know, late 19th century, earliest 20th century studio photography. Yeah. Studio portraiture. They're beautiful pictures. They're very, very well. Very, very well done. Very nice. Um, but the odd ones, odd to us uh, today, odd, right? the odd ones stand out. Right. Michael Lessie sees these photographs and he's wondering what the hell's going on in Black River Falls, turn of the century. So he researches it and he basically gets in front of a, a spool of microfilm and he looks at the kind of the newspaper of record in Black River Falls at that time period, which was a weekly newspaper called the Badger State Banner, which was run by a a duo, a a father-son duo named Frank and George Cooper. And what Lessie read kind of blew his mind. I mean, he, he was looking at countless articles, not only in Black River Falls, but all over the state. Mundane, very matter of fact, written articles, kind of just snippets, you know, basically in, in conversation. Oh, and this happened too, right? But these were stories of death, suicide, murder, arson, disease, and just unimaginable suffering. And so, you know, I, I, I do think Black River Falls gets a little bit of a bad rap when I hear people talk about today, when I hear them talk about Wisconsin Death Trip, and even in the movie Wisconsin Death Trip, 
you know, it talks about this being, you know, happenings in one small town in Wisconsin and over the turn of the century. That's not true. The photographs are from Black River Falls. Mainly. Almost right. all of them, yes, right. are from Black River Falls because that's where Charles Van Skoik operated out of. Right. And that's where his studio was. But a lot of the stories are very much elsewhere in a, the state. A lot of the articles come from Dane County and Kenosha and Waukesha and up north in Ashland County, um, Appleton, where we were, and where Milwaukee, we are, right. Milwaukee. Kikana. I mean, very, very close to where we are even. Probably the majority of the of the stories come from the Black River Falls area, maybe at least the western part of the state and the surrounding area. But a lot of the articles come from other places well, as well. Like everywhere out, like Cleveland, Wisconsin, which I had never heard of till a woman yeah, I worked by with. Sheboygan, yeah. Right. And, I mean, like you said, Little Shoe, Kikana, Appleton, even where we're from, Milwaukee, Dane County, Madison area, very far up north too. So... It's covering the, the grand spectrum of Wisconsin, but a lot of it is based out of Black River Falls, which on one hand, they, it might have painted a negative picture, especially back then, and people don't necessarily consider the time. But on the other hand, people might not have ever heard of Black River Falls until this, so it kind of put them on the map too. So whether it's negative or not. Yeah, I mean, they, it's, 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 a, it's a draw for them. It put them on the map. Uh, of course. The movie was made there. Local residents acted in it. It and, was a big deal when and, it was and being And people made. are fascinated by this book. It's not like they go, oh, God, that place is horrible. I'm not going there. I mean, this it's a place of intrigue as a result of this because this book is, like you said, a cult following. It's, it's fascinating in, in every way. So what Lessie did, Michael Lessie took roughly about 150-ish photos from the collection of Charles Van Skoik, and he intersperses them in the book with these very dark newspaper articles of what's been going on in, in Black River Falls in the area at the time. And it just creates this uh, narrative that's hard to even explain. I don't even know if I can come up with the words. It's just suffering and despondency and murder and suicide. And it just, it creates this, this you know, I think he... Michael Lessie himself said it's not the American dream, it's the American nightmare. Yeah, and it's it's... It's story after story after story just kind of being thrust upon you. It's almost overwhelming at times because it's just suicide, death, fire. It's all these just negative things that are happening, and it's almost like, oh, my. And it's all from different angles, different perspectives, different towns. It's just a different reading, as we've said multiple times now, than you are going to read in any other context. So he, he put these photographs and these newspaper articles together. There, there's no captions in the photographs. <laughs> the people do not pertain to uh, the articles, right? So right. you're reading an article about this horrible thing that happened, but your eye wants to go to the photograph right. of the person. And you, it, it's kind of weird because you automatically, you want to associate the person in the photograph with that article, but it's not that person. So it, it takes you from reading to dark, beautifully done pictures. It, it just takes you back and forth, and it, it's just a roller coaster. It's told from five perspectives. Um, one is the Coopers, the editors of the paper, records from the Mendota State Hospital for the Insane, the town historian, town gossip, which is interesting. Right. And then he also uses some authors in there, sort of books from from authors, well-known authors, uh, Hamlin Garland, Glenway Westcott, 
uh, to kind of hammer home his narrative. So, you know, we're going to give you some some uh, examples of the kind of things that were happening around the turn of the century. We're going to talk a little more about why these things were happening, too. But, Mickey, I know that you, you had a, a couple of, of examples queued up of what the hell was going on here, 1910, prior to that. Well, one snippet early in the book, which comes from 1885 to 1886, as it says, quote, The naked body of the wife Fritz Armbruster, a woman who had worked in Best's butcher shop, was found frozen by the roadside near Albion, six miles from Black River Falls. She and her husband had separated, he living in town, she living alone in the house, although no one had noticed that she had been suffering from any physical or mental disorder. Two years ago, the loss of a child is said to have affected her very deeply and may have led to her becoming partially demented. Those are the kinds of words they used back then. The probability is that she arose in a fit of delirium and wandered away, unquote. So she's separated from her husband. She uh, loses a child two years ago, which unfortunately was really common back then. Child, Especially during that time. Yes. And, uh, you know, they think that she got up in a fit of delirium, wandered away in the dead of winter, naked, and froze to death on the side of the road. And, you know, like like we said, deaths of children, not only in Black River Falls, turn of the century, but in, like Mickey said, in that time period. I just, I couldn't imagine this. I mean, you Especially were almost... Especially as a mother. You know, prenatal care, postnatal care, there it just didn't exist. Right. You know, and it, you were almost, it was almost expected that you were going to lose children at some point. Right, but um, having said that, we're dealing with poor people. Sure. So they don't have a whole lot to take up their time. So their their loved ones were their entertainment, so to speak, for lack of a choice of words. Better than that, a mother or even father losing their child. I mean, that was your whole existence at that point, especially a young one. I mean, nowadays that's that's going to be tough for anyone, especially a mother who carried the child. To, to, to lose a, a child as, as frequently as it happened, it was still difficult. And so people would just kind of lose their minds because that's, that, that's what they did. They looked after their children. That was their source of their life. I mean, on one hand, it seems a little bizarre that a woman could lose her mind so much just for having lost a child because, I mean, it happens, unfortunately. It's, it's part, we're animals. It, it just, it's part of human nature and, you know, nature in general. Back then... When, when the world was so, especially in, in poorer towns, there was nothing going on. It's kind of hard to believe that someone could go that crazy that they just walk, wandered naked throughout and just freeze to death. But on the other hand, it's it's a little hard for us to understand because our world's changed so much and we've become so much more spoiled. It's hard to believe. This article was written and it, it, it's, it's hard for me to come up with words. And, that, and that's kind of just one... We'll read more, but that's just kind of one glimpse into the what the book is trying to tell you. Well, to make matters worse, at that time there was a diphtheria outbreak right. that hit the western part. Disease is all over. It hit the whole state hard, but it hit Black River Falls, western part of the state, um, particularly hard. And diphtheria, which is very rare today, um, and there's a vaccine. There's a vaccine for it today, so it's a disease that now you almost never see. But 120 years ago, if you got diphtheria, you're in trouble, and it and it hit children hard, and it's it's basically it's it's a serious infection of the nose and throat, and what it does is it, it puts a a sheet of thick, gray matter, and it covers the back of your throat, and it makes it hard to breathe, and children were especially susceptible to this, and it killed 
lots of kids. Another article in the book, quote, The malignant diphtheria epidemic in Lewis Valley, La Crosse County, proved fatal to all the children in Martin Malloy's family, five in number. Three died in a day. The house and furniture were burned. Imagine losing three children in one day to a disease. Two more to come. Right, and that's the other thing is when when diphtheria got into your house, you burned the house. Right, that's that's how you dealt with it so that it didn't spread any further. Another one, W.W. Crombie and his wife near Wrightsville have lost three children within the past three weeks from diphtheria. The oldest, a young lady of 17 years of age, died last Friday. Indeed, they are sorely afflicted. All their neighbors can do is extend sympathy from a distance. Their house is quarantined, unquote. Does this sound familiar? All you can do is extend sympathy from a distance. Your house is quarantined. <laughs> it's almost deja vu a little bit and from what we just went through now. There's a lot of glimpses of that in this book, too. You see that word diphtheria over and over and over. The other thing, uh, so obviously disease disease hit the state and actually this area very hard. Uh, despondency also I think is a theme that you see coming up over and over in this book. And you see it a lot in farmers. And one thing that was going on at this time, you know, Wisconsin used to be uh, a, a very prominent wheat farming state until it wasn't because all the wheat crops dried up. The soil was barren. When you grow wheat, you just keep taking from the soil and you don't put anything back. And after generations of this, the soil was gone. The soil was depleted. And farmers couldn't make any money anymore. And when they couldn't make any money, they weren't getting any loans. The banks went belly up. And so now nobody had any money, even though they were poor to begin with. And now they're basically their only income, income stream that they had is now gone. Quote, John Cook a farmer living in the town of Oakland was found in his barn the other morning hanging by the neck. No cause was known. About 12 years ago, his father hanged himself in the same barn, unquote. This one was very intriguing to me. Quote, Chris Wold, a farmer near Poskin Lake, committed suicide by deliberately blowing off his head with dynamite. He placed a quantity of the explosives in a hole in the ground, laid his head over it, and touched off the fuse, exclaiming, Here I go, and the Lord go with me, unquote. I guess my question on that is, how do we know he said that? Right. How do we know he said, Here I go, and the Lord go with me? Was unless, somebody there with Right, him? unless they found so. a note and they didn't say that. I mean, you know, you wonder how much, how much investigation was going on at this time. So grief, you know, obviously grief is, you know, despondency that I mentioned is another theme that you see a lot in a lot of these articles throughout the book. There's one, another one, quote, a woman was recently found wandering about the streets of Eau Claire with a dead baby in her arms. She was from Chippewa County and had lost her husband and was destitute, unquote. Quote, Lena Watson of Black River Falls gave birth to an illegitimate child and choked it to death, period, unquote. That's it. That's... That's the article. And and this one's disturbing. Mrs. John Larson, wife of farmer living in the town of Troy, drowned her three children in Lake St. Croix during a fit of insanity 
They speculated on that a lot, obviously. Her husband, on finding her absence from the house, began a search and found her at the lakeshore. Two of her children lying in the sand dead. The third could not be found. Mrs. Larson imagines that devils pursue her. Frederick Windex, an aged farmer, committed suicide at Janesville by drowning himself in a pool where his little daughter had been accidentally drowned two years ago. And that's all that's written. There's no context there. It's just this matter-of-fact, dry, here's a sentence about somebody that killed themselves, here's a sentence about somebody that died, on to the next thing. And speaking of that, this doesn't even necessarily have a context, but a horrifying discovery is made at the Rosedale Cemetery in Partyville. The grave of Mrs. Sarah Smith was unearthed for the purpose of removing the remains and on opening the coffin it was discovered that she had been buried while in a trance. The body was partly turned over and the right hand was drawn up to the face. The fingers indicated that they had been bitten by the woman on finding herself buried alive. So she was biting her fingers when she woke up? She found out she was alive in a coffin and not going to get out and just nervously started gnawing at herself. So this obviously begs the question, if you read the book and you read all of these countless articles about these disturbing things that were going on. Bizarre. What the hell was going on in Black River Falls, Mickey? I'm not sure the people there knew, obviously. You know, it kind of sounds like a town is going crazy. It sounds like an an area is losing its mind a little bit and, and causing all of these very dark and bizarre things, horrific things to happen. I think there were children shooting farmers. I mean, there were there were kids killing adults. John Anderson, I think, was his name. Right. And Just ran away with his brother, and with a shotgun, they ran away. They shot a farmer who lived by himself, took over his house afterwards, and eventually the cops came up on them. The younger brother just kind of told them the story because he was afraid and just kind of going along. And the John Anderson ran away, and eventually the story has a couple of snippets but they eventually caught up with him, and he was tried as an adult because it was a horrific act. But this is, a, like, I think he was 17. 13. 13. 13 and 10 were the brothers. Right. I mean, what causes a child to, to just run off and shoot a random stranger and take over his house and, and have no remorse, evidently? There's desperation. Desperation is is a, is a word. Yeah, I mean, there's... There's just there's so many articles about people cutting their own throats, yeah. people setting themselves on Hanging fire. themselves. You know, th- this is real stuff that happened. This isn't make-believe. This isn't Michael Lussie, you know, picking things out of thin air and putting it in a book. These are things that were going on between 1885 and 1910 in mostly the western part of the state, Black River Falls area, along with some other places. George Canuck a laborer is alleged to have sold his seven-year-old boy to Italian peddlers who have been working in Manitowoc. The sale is said to have taken place at Canuck's house during a drunken orgy in which all participated. The Italians, two women and a man, left town next day with the boy. Just desperation. I mean, the guy sold his child during a sex romp, and the kid never saw him again. They just took off. I mean, you just don't hear this stuff. So another thing in the book is there's there's a number of, of reports from Mendota State Hospital record book of uh, people who are being admitted to the insane asylum, which is what they were called uh, at that time. They were called 
I think it was called a lunatic asylum, to tell you the truth. You know, Mendota's in Madison, I think, and seen some things where it's called it the local insane asylum. It's in Madison. It's the state mental hospital. Um, that's not real local to Black River Falls, but at that time, that's where you went. There were two hospitals at the time, Mendota in Madison and Northern State Hospital, uh, which is Winnebago, and both of them are still there. Both of them are still active. One of the entries in the Mendota State Record Book, quote, admitted July 27th, 1894, town of Franklin, age 65, Norwegian, married, two daughters, aged 17 and 13, farmer, poor. First symptom about July 4th, 1894, case unknown, possibly hard work or depression as a result of the failure of crops, is getting worse and more violent, unquote. So we need to talk about what was going on in, in this state at that time period. And we, you know, really we need to talk about who these people were. Who were the people living in Black River Falls at that part, turn of the century? Most of them, a lot of them, were European immigrants. They were heavy Norwegians. They were Germans, um, you know, leaving their country and coming to the land of opportunity, right? Trying to find better lives. Right. <laughs> so they were coming to a country they didn't know coming to a country where they didn't know anybody, coming to a country where they didn't know if they were going to have work. Um, and, and obviously, again, this is a very rural area. There's not a lot of jobs here. The mining industry had left prior. The logging industry had left prior. So you now have basically a depressed economy in that part of the state. Wheat farming was dead. And dairy farming, which really had saved the rest of the state, was slow to get to the Black River Falls area. A lot of people think dairy farming is just, we, we just kind of gradually, uh, it's just something that happened in Wisconsin that we just became the dairy state. That's not what happened. We became the dairy state due to necessity. We became the dairy state based on uh, a kind of desperation where we couldn't grow wheat fields anymore. So we, t we turned to dairy to make up for that income that we lost. So if you're a wheat farmer and you're coming from Europe, if you're a farmer and you're coming from Europe and you go to Black River Falls area and you don't have a crop, your crops die, the, the, the soil is barren, what are you going to do? There's no manufacturing jobs there. There's no industry there. It is interesting that, I've always thought it was interesting that a lot of immigrants tend to choose similar climates to the one that they were from originally. So, I mean, Norwegian, Norway would be somewhat, I mean, they're located next to water. So it makes the climate a little more mild, but it is, they kind of say it, stay at a similar latitude. And yet, like you said, what they did back at home wouldn't necessarily apply to the land that they chose in America. So what was going on there? Obviously, Black River Falls in that area is so isolated. You know, and they come here and you're going through a winter in 1894 in Black River Falls in a house that you probably built yourself. There's untreated mental illness. There's that mental illness. They don't even really know what it is yet. You have very little work. You, you actually, we had a nationwide depression during this time too, which is actually the depression before the Great Depression. Right. So it wasn't only this state that was dealing with this. It was the whole country. But Black River Falls, obviously, you know, you add the diphtheria outbreak. 
you add the local banks failing. I mean, it was hit particularly hard. And it obviously comes through in the photographs of Charles Van Skoik and in this remarkable book put together by Michael Lussie. Businesses failing, banks, people not knowing how to do it, the farms are failing, and you have crime rates rising. And this is people who were not well-to-do to begin with. So out of desperation, they're just losing their minds, wandering off aimlessly. They're doing murders that they would never be capable of otherwise. They're killing themselves. They're killing their children. They're watching their children die from diseases they have no understanding of. It's insanity as a whole. How do you deal with that? The other thing you see quite a bit in this book is arson. Right. Lots of arson. Which is another sign of how they're handling it. They're just madness. They're just burning things down. And some of it was... Some of it was premeditated, and it was it was done for insurance reasons. There's a guy that's, right. I think he's, he cuts the throat of his horses, and you know blames it on a on some kind of transient or something, and try to get insurance money for it. And you see barns burning down left and right, people's houses burning down left and right. You know, and they're all basically blamed on incendiary instances. That That's know, the words they used over and over. Right, and that which which means arson basically. And are were they all arson? Probably not. And There's, and and you're talking about adults. He, here's one quote: Lydia Berger, a 15 year old girl, is in jail having confessed to the crime of arson. Several days ago, she left her home on a farm north of Milwaukee and went to town to go to the carnival. She was out late that night, and the next day, her father whipped her for staying away without her his permission. She sought revenge by setting fire to the little cottage in which they lived. It was burned to the ground. A neighbor gave the family shelter, and the next day the girl set fire to the house of their benefactor. Her mother ordered her to harness a team of horses, which was temporarily quartered in a barn belonging to the Wisconsin Lake Ice Company. The girl went to the loft and set fire to the barn, which, with 64 tons of hay, was burned to the ground. The girl says she set fire to the places simply to have revenge on her father for whipping her. Unquote. That's how they rationalized back then. And this is a 15-year-old girl. You also have a lot of a lot of instances where things are kind of ginned up as mental illness. Somebody who is depressed because they're not they, they can't provide for their family, they put them in Mendota. You see a lot of a lot of delirium, it says. You know, a lot of times this is this is made as the reasons for why these things are happening and maybe that's true maybe that's not we weren't necessarily as aware of the human psyche psychology wasn't even in existence yet right around then they would refer to people who were interested as mentalists but even those people were considered quacks so it's just not something they considered realistically right but you just you you had all these this kind of perfect storm come together that created this despondency in the area and crime I mean, look at look at crime today. Where where are high crime areas today? They're in places of poverty. They're not in affluent neighborhoods. You know, a couple podcasts ago, we were talking about Frank Lloyd Wright in Oak Park, Illinois. Where was the crime there? Right, he was building by this by this time. He was building all kinds of houses in the prairie style for people. Right, while three hours away, we have in a completely different world in Black River Falls, Wisconsin. You know, you see a difference there in poverty and affluence. So the movie came out in 1999, and the movie is, I don't really know how to describe them. It's not a its not a movie 
in the traditional sense. It's not a documentary. It's referred to a lot as a documentary. It's, it's kind of recreations of these stories. I think it's about an hour and 20, 20 minutes. Yeah. They, they pick and choose some of these um, kind of more outlandish stories in the book, and uh, they recreate them, you know, juxtaposing photographs from the book as well. And it, it, it kind of, you know, was really highly acclaimed, I think, when it when it came out in 1999. It's still, like we said earlier, kind of a cult classic. You can watch it on YouTube. It's there right now. Called Wisconsin Death Trip. I bought it on Amazon for 20 bucks. And, and the narrator is basically reading a lot of these articles. Right. While those pictures are flashing. Definitely something to check out. It's definitely a, a narrative of a dark time in our history. But, but, you know, I think we also need to talk about the fact that Michael Lessie was going for a narrative, too. He Obviously, he picked and chose the photographs that he wanted to use from Charles Van Skoik to create this narrative. It's not like every photograph Charles Van Skoik took, as Mickey said before, was dark or had to do with death. There was a lot of normal things going Family on. Family pictures, mostly. In Black River Falls as well. You know, and I and I think one thing that, that the movie does that I notice, and I don't I don't notice this in, in the book at all, is it kind of talks about um, there there is some modern day scenes, and they do talk to some modern day people about Black River Falls today, and they do talk about people who they they talk about bad things that happen there today in the movie in the movie. Right. You know, they talk about a, a woman talks about her 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 child being murdered. They talk about they found a head in a bag in the lake. You know, they're talking to a cop and he says that they found a, a knife with blood on it and a big pool of blood around it. So, and and at the time in the movie this is going on, they're, I think they're juxtaposing it with, uh, if I remember correctly, the homecoming parade. You know, so, the, so I basically, basically what the movie is saying is, are we any better today? Have we changed that much? Have we changed at all? Right. You know, because, you know, we're looking at this book that's full of horror just horrific scenes and we look at this today while we're sitting in our houses and we're thinking jesus christ what was wrong with these people and that was a hundred years prior at the time but when we look at ourselves today could somebody make the same movie using snippets from our newspapers today yes they could for sure of course they could well we started this episode with a story that's perfect evidence of course I did read something that said that they were looking at Wisconsin Death Trip, and even though it's not too far into the past, it seems like they were aliens on another planet. And I think, again, when you look at that book, you kind of get that sense that these people are from a different world, but they're not. Well, just, yeah, to go as haywire as it seems as they were. And, I mean, like you said, some of these paragraphs are just a few lines long, and it paints a picture that this person just lost their mind. But there's so many of them throughout the book, and that's just in small-town, poverty-stricken areas in Wisconsin. That, that, that stuff was going on throughout the entire country. So this is just a tiny representation of what was going on at the time. So, I, I mean... You're right when you say that this wasn't the only thing going on. You know, at that point in time, and and again, I think we, we need to remember who these people were. These people were immigrants for the most part. They were coming to an unknown country. They didn't know anyone when they came here. They didn't know anything about the land. A lot of times they bought the land sight unseen. 
And uh, sometimes they bought the land in the wintertime when it was, you know, the, the stumps and the slash were hidden. The fact that their land was barren and useless was hidden. But they came here and they went through hell, <laughs> but they made a life. Most of them did. Obviously, you hear the, the, the horrors of the people who didn't. But most of them did, and they worked in the lead mines. They worked in the, in the logging camps. They worked in the breweries of Milwaukee and Kenosha. You know, they opened stores. They built railroads. They built roads. They worked in flour mills. And we're just hearing about the darker and, and possibly even bouts of temporary insanity. The people who were, they, were losing, they had no money. They were afraid their family was going to die in front of them with the disease and the lack of food. These are just acts of desperate people that weren't necessarily everybody. These are a small, a small group of people overall, as many stories as there were. So it's just, it paints a picture, but that's not the overall picture that was going on, as is always the case. Right. And now, you know, these people are our ancestors. You know, they are who we came from. And I think there is a tendency to look at this book as they are aliens. There is a tendency to look at this book as I think you and I you know what which was our reaction when we first saw it this is a completely different world it's not we're doing these things today people are acting just as crazy we're doing worse things today right we have better technology to do it with and we're doing this in 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 a in an era where we have treatment we right. have you know we live in a medical era and we yeah. understand human behavior and psychology. We think we do. Right. Well, right? Th- th- there are at least concepts that we're trying to understand. Back then, it wasn't even you were just crazy or you weren't. So who's living in the death trip? Them or us? Yeah. And that's back at a time where the technology wasn't it is, and serial killers weren't the phenomenon that they are now. And this stuff's been going on for a while. I mean, people don't handle depression and anxiety and all that stuff very well and it kind of goes into that towards the end of the book kind of trying to describe and explain why this might have happened and it's kind of funny some of them i don't know if they would differ from each other or contradict each other but basically sociologists back then would refer to the large cities as as centers of social corruption, special causes of social degeneration, whereas rural districts and country towns were free from that unmoral influence. But yet, as we can see, the country and the rural areas have their own social evils. So I think people are people, and what reasons you come up with is just kind of rationalizing. I mean, it's an interesting thought because there's more people in an urban area, but obviously... People who are free to roam and can go a bit crazy or interesting theories, but I'm not sure that it really explains away all that this is that's gone on. There were theories on that. Uh, you know, they were trying to prove that the origins of poverty and crime were hereditary. You know, and I think environment obviously plays a lot into that. But I don't know if is it in your genes to um, be poor to be to remain. I think remain poor. Yeah, there was a. a a study done earlier than this in 1874 to 1876 where they tried to, this was accepted as, as kind of a scientific fact for decades that the origins of poverty and crime are rooted in heredity. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's kind of interesting because they, they did believe <laughs> there was a thought that um, rural areas, like if, if, if anybody who was worth anything left rural communities and they went to the cities, 
So there was a thought that, uh, you know, the only people remaining <laughs> in, the, in rural communities were basically tramps and vagabonds, you know, running around in a, in a cesspool of unchucked uh, fornication and uh, rampant drunkenness. I saw that movie. <laughs> I don't know if it's Paid a whole lot different. I mean, it sounds like, uh, you know, Saturday night on any college campus in America. <laughs> or a couple of websites that you can find nowadays if you don't look that far. I mean, I guess I understand it to some degree, but to say it's genetic or hereditary, it's, it seems a little over the top to me. But I, I understand that one generation might pass down to another generation, which passes down to another. The whole thought of we're destined to to be failures or, you know, the oh, woe is me, the world is down on me and there's no way I'm ever going to be able to overcome, you know, we've been downtrodden and, and poor for generations. I mean, that mentality... That psyche can be forced down to generation to generation. So I don't know if it's hereditary, if it's in your blood and your DNA, but psychologically, I can believe that you can convince your offspring and, and all that that yeah, you're not you're not going to ever amount to anything because we didn't, and your grandparents didn't, and your right. grandparents didn't. I mean, the environment you grow up in obviously has a lot to do with that, and you know, generations of families have grown up poor. Right. Just like generations of families have grown up wealthy. Right. And not necessarily because of anything that the current generation has or has not done. But you're right. The hereditary aspect of of uh, remaining poor and remaining uh, kind of a, with a criminal mindset was debunked. It was debunked after some time. You know, sure. It was discredited after decades of, of belief in the late 19th century. Well, like, like a lot of theories that have, have gone through or been bypassed throughout history— there's another theory by George Beard. He called it American nervousness, and he wrote a book about it, basically saying that the chief and primary cause of this development is very rapid increase of nervousness, which is caused by modern civilization as a whole. Modern civilization, as he put it, was distinguished from ancient civilization by these five characteristics. Steam power, the periodical press, the telegraph, the sciences, and as he put it, these are his words, the mental activity of women. He thought that the periodical press telegraphed recent discoveries of science and growth of history in all of its branches, along with steam power not only breaking work patterns but speeding everything up, including deadlines and expectations, caused this anxiety in people because everything was supposed to be done faster. And so now people who could take their time and, and put their thought into stuff it was just causing this nervousness and anxiety because there's suddenly a time crunch on everything. And that sounds like a pretty reasonable theory, as I would describe it, as a whole. Don't you agree? No question. You know, steam power, you can kind of uh, compare that akin to today when we're talking about um, technology taking over jobs. Because back in this time, steam power did do that. Steam power reduced employment because... Uh, machines were now doing things that people were doing prior to that. So it reduced the amount of jobs. It, you're right, it constrained time. Things, things were going faster. And the other thing it did was that now you were now competing with other employees. Right. Right. Because so, other people had the, their, the same means, the same technology. So, yeah, that caused competition that wasn't necessarily there. Plus, with the telegraph and... They were more aware of what each other was doing, exactly, which causes this competition. Besides, you, you were now your production was being recorded, right? Which is normal for us today, right? Right. It wasn't then, so this was all new to them today, you know. So it's now pitting you against somebody else. We 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 think of that today, 
and we think of trying to do the best at what we can. Back then, when this was all a kind of a new theory, your production was being recorded and it was being compared to other people, which is normal for us today, but it wasn't then. Now it was, you know, there's a quote in a book, it says, a man's success and a man's failure were judged to be a reflection of his soul. So that led to pressure, and that led, you know, pressure like that uh, well, often have, led to suicide and a lot of the things that you see in this book. Right, and, like, just further to, to make your point is instant gratification now. We know everything about everything immediately in five different ways. Back then, word traveled just so much slower, and the pace of life was just slower. And you didn't know what everybody else was doing, so you just focused on what you were doing. And I think as a whole, maybe people were even more mentally healthy just because they weren't so judgmental and focused on what everybody else was doing. But on the other hand, you also couldn't really rate yourself and, and see that you were maybe more successful than you thought. So, I mean, you could go on and on in comparisons because the world was just so much different than, than it is now, which sounds cliche, but it's very true. Right. And, you know, the, the rate of transactions were a lot faster, too, than what they were used to at that time, meaning companies were getting paid a lot faster based on what they did. So that's kind of the the phrase time is money was very new to them then. This was all kind of a, of a new a new world order, a kind of new way of life for people that were not used to that stuff. And it caused a lot of what, what was referred to as this American nervousness. And another thing, I think we had, we had been talking earlier, Mickey, about this, the, the periodical press, and you had compared it to uh, akin to kind of today's social media. And I disagreed with you at the time, and I don't anymore because that is kind of doesn't what have was the social version of it. it. Right, it doesn't have the social interaction between people that we do today, which is you know what social media is. But you knew a lot quicker what other people were doing. You knew people's business. Right. You know? It was the start of what we know sure. today. People understanding what other people are doing on a more rapid basis. You know, Lessie talks about this in the book, and he says that, you know, it, quote, created an atmosphere of such rapid change and constant argument that modern Americans constantly teetered on the very edge of nervous exhaustion, unquote. Right. Is today's social media not the very embodiment of that quote? Yeah. That was written 50 years ago about something that was happening 100 years ago? Open up Twitter for five minutes. Spend five minutes on Facebook. This is what you see, constant argument. We're doing the same thing. Right. And even, even uh, you, you know, suicides. So much of this book is about suicide. That was printed in your local paper. If somebody in your neighborhood killed themselves, that was printed in the local paper. You knew that somebody killed themselves. You don't know that today. It's not even printed today. Well, it probably happens more because there's more people. Of course. But yeah, they just don't, I don't know if, if there's probably a better way to say this, but it's not necessarily considered newsworthy because it probably happens more than, and maybe they just don't want to paint that picture as nasty a picture as they paint otherwise. To, to further account for life in rural areas, areas being a place for their own type of madness. Uh, in 1911, L.H. Bailey wrote a book called The Country Life Movement in the United States. I'm going to read a quote of his from that book. It said that one of the greatest insufficiency in country life is its lack of organization or cohesion, both in social and economic ways. Country people are separated both because of the distances between their properties and because they own their own land. 
This is a general absence of such common feelings as would cause them to act together unitedly, saying that because of urban areas being so close, closely knit, they can work better and, and help help each other. I mean, that's an interesting theory, too, to go the other way as far as why rural areas might have this onset madness that we've been discussing the whole time. So when you, you, you kind of add all these things together and then you slap onto that, here's a quote in the book. So it says, in return for being a woman and bearing children, the country offered fatal epidemic disease. These diseases not only killed children, but created a state of mind that basically was uh, referred to as survivor's guilt. And there were so many of these of these newspaper reports of murders and suicides, and this is what these people would see every single day. This is what was news to them. It says the regularity of such newspaper obituaries, accounts, and reports may even have created a greater sense of doom. While some were comforted, others, overcome by foreboding, killed themselves and their children, so that they may at least master the time and conditions of a death that seemed inevitable. So they were in charge of when this stuff was going to happen. So, right. That sounds... So imagine that state of mind. You're so desperate, just depressed and and downtrodden, and the world's coming down on you so hard that you know it's going to all come crashing down, but to have any sense of control, you take the lives of your loved ones so that the world doesn't do it in front of you. That's basically how they're rationalizing, right? I mean, wow. Right. I've, can you imagine even feeling right. that desperate that you want to kill your loved ones so that you have any sense of control? So fate is in your hands. My God. So th- this was also uh, during a time in which there was a rapid escalation, as you can imagine, in, in kind of two diagnoses that you saw a lot, and that's paranoia and obsessive-compulsive disorder. But there were also times where things would be attributed to mental disease, which is what paranoia was thought of then and what OCD was thought of then, that were kind of not. They were actually logical reactions to the things that were going on to them. Yeah, we've become more educated as far as the human psyche. And so, yeah, I mean, they might have used terms like that, but they basically just, anything that was out of the ordinary was just madness or diphtheria or crazy or whatever. So it says, Lessie, Lessie puts it this way. He says, in this quote, in this way, the paranoia attributed to those men from Jackson County who were committed to the Mendota State Asylum between 1890 and 1910 and whose case histories were considered of sufficient detail to warrant study, their paranoia may be understood as an ordinary adaptive reaction to suddenly extraordinary circumstances. Those men from Jackson County who began to suspect their friends, neighbors, relatives, and circumstances suspected them rightly insofar as they suddenly understood a truth that they had never before imagined. So basically they're saying, like I think the, the man that I had talked about earlier who killed him, who, who was taken into Mendota because he was mad that his crops were dead. And they, they hauled him into Mendota because he was, sounds like he was yelling a lot, you know. See, My dad would have been in the loony bin <laughs> when I was two. And my dad's a good man, but he's got a temper. That's, that's what we call it now. So I think, and as we alluded to earlier, love you, Dad. When we talked about, I don't know how uh, you know. We don't know that there was a lot of investigation done by these newspapers. You know, when they said the things that they did about these people, like the man who was admitted to Mendota because he was mad his crops were dead. <laughs> you know, and, and it I th- sounds ridiculous to even hear that, right? 
and you know, I'll go back to the to the guy that I talked about who blew his head off with dynamite. But before he did so, he said, "Here I go, and may the Lord go with me." We don't know that he said that. That was pure poetry put in there by whoever wrote that yeah, article. Right, right. I mentioned before that dynamite was used every single day by these people. They would use it because they had to blow out the stumps that were left by the logging companies on their lots. He had that instead of a gun. I mean, to kill himself with. If he did kill himself. Right. They, like, oh, right. How, you know, newspapers were riddled back in that day with people getting maimed and murdered or maimed and killed by accidental mishaps with dynamite. It happened all over the place. Right, and there's no way we could have known what was going through his head at the time. Exactly, and we know he didn't, you know, there's no way anybody could know that he said something before he killed himself. Right. or what his state of mind was. Maybe he was having a great day. And he accidentally blew himself up, like you said. So it is a lot of speculation. It's just, you know, there's so much stuff. And and we can, even today, this is done, where we just attribute something that we find unimaginable as mental illness. Mm -hmm. When it's not necessarily mental illness. I think the lady that you talked about, who they found frozen on the side of the road naked, and they said she probably got up in a fit of delirium. Probably, yeah, because she lost her child about two years, months, two years two before years before that. Right. So they found her on the side of the road. You know, if, if we find a woman naked, frozen on the side of the road today, we're not thinking she walked out in a fit of delirium. We're thinking serial killer probably. Something happened to her. Right. But they didn't look into that then. The whole idea of psychology and human behavior was not really... A branch of science yet right and so you had these two different worlds which were the cities and the rural areas you know and you had the cities had been filled with with the neuroaesthetic hystericals <laughs> and the countryside was filled with uh, sexually deviant degenerates <laughs> and here they end up in this book a hundred years later is that like the capulets versus the montagues it sounds like romeo and juliet are we it? talking shakespeare here yeah that's what it sounds like to me he did a lot of tragedies he sure did and, uh, you know, I think this book sums up a tragedy pretty well. Right. And I honestly, this is, it, it's an interesting book. It's, it jumps around a lot. So it's, it's hard to wrap your head around it, but this is my favorite part of the book because it does get into the psychology of it. And they're just theories, you know, based on other people's theories even. But I like that it kind of tried to break down what was going on and just try to understand. And that's what it's doing. And I, whether these are correct theories or not, reading the book leads you to want to come to some conclusion as to what was going on, because otherwise you'll just, it'll keep you awake at night. And I think in what we alluded to before, reading this book does bring you to some tunnel vision of that time period, 1890 to 1910. As I mentioned earlier, one of the things that I did like about the movie, and I don't know that I'm a big fan of, of, of the movie, but one of the things I did like about it is how it, it talks about it, it kind of recreates this book today and it talks to people in modern times talking about bad things that happened to them in the small town of black river falls meaning this stuff happens all over the place to everybody at any time period and it goes on right we live with this every day we just don't read about it in the paper every day it doesn't happen to our life so we can stay away from it these people were not all that unusual a hundred years ago, that they were all madmen and were just so much better today. Well, their description of it was just different. They passed it off a lot easier, whereas now we label everything and we pinpoint everything and everything is scrutinized and, and overanalyzed and stuff. They just kind of chalked it up to this or that back then. But as you're saying, you see a lot of this stuff going on every day. In fact, to the point where we're kind of desensitized to it. 
we've kind of just come to take it for granted that a lot of this stuff happens. As you said, they don't even write about suicides in the paper, what used to be the paper, the digital paper, whatever it is now. You just, you don't hear about it because it's commonplace, unfortunately. We're desensitized to it today. It's funny, I'll listen to a, a a true crime podcast where they have 500 episodes talking about 500 different true crime stories. But then I'll look at this book from 100 years ago and I'll be like, wow, what is wrong with those yeah, people? Yeah, those people were insane. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the name of our podcast is Badger Bazaar. And some of these stories are from the last 20 or 30 years. And we get a whole bunch of them yeah. to go. Yeah. A lot. And more to come after that because we keep making them. I just, as far as, and as, as far as the movie, I can, I can see why you would say you, it's not necessarily your favorite, but it's definitely different. And interesting, which stood out to me. I like anything different and and bizarre and strange and out of the ordinary. And it's definitely that. So it, if you never need to watch it again, it's worth watching the first time. No question, you have to check it out. I don't. I don't. I don't mean to. Uh, it's not going to be a waste of your time. That's for sure. Then, as far as the book, the writer himself, Michael Lessie, in his own words, I, I thought this was a nice way to sum up what we've read. Quote. This book is an exercise in historical actuality. It uses photographs as if they were events and the words of newspapers, novels, madhouse records, and recollections as if taken all together, they were the carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen molecules of a single, solitary minute of time and air, unquote. Sums it up pretty well for me. I can't think of a better way to end it. The words of Lessie himself. Amen, brother. <laughs>